Thanks, Brian. Well, thank you all for coming again this morning. I'm trying to remember where I am in this series of lectures. And as I said yesterday, the idea was to identify, or for me to identify, I've come up with six rules for studying presidents, or six rules for evaluating presidents, or six rules for being president. And yesterday morning I spoke of the importance of timing in the success of a president, and how a president can suit a particular time, and perhaps not another time. If Woodrow Wilson had come along 20 years earlier or 20 years later, he wouldn't have been the success he was. Same can be said for any successful president. Last night I was speaking about the problems of being too loyal to the people who work for you, and how there is a distinction. Some people would consider it unfortunate. Some people would consider it just the way the world is. A distinction between what you could call a private code of morality and the code of morality of a leader. And how sometimes people who are governing great powers have to do things that wouldn't make them particularly admirable as individuals. How they sometimes have to cut off friends because the friends have become political burdens and they inhibit the larger goal of accomplishing their agenda as president. Now, if you've been watching the news in the last 24 hours, we're seeing a case where the governor of New York is running up against this question of private ethics and public ethics. And this may be a case, see, the, the problem that Elliot Spitzer is going to have, aside from all the, so the moral questions involved in relations with his wife and family and all of this, I mean, if you haven't heard the news, he's been linked to a prostitution ring. And it will appear that he has paid for the services of a prostitute or one or more prostitutes. Anyway, it has been pointed out that if Spitzer hadn't made his reputation on his high and rigid code of ethics, if he hadn't, as a, the Attorney General of New York, prosecuted all sorts of people for violating codes of ethics, then he probably wouldn't be in quite such the fix he's in today. Now, it's more complicated than that because he may well have violated both New York and federal laws. And if he's going to spend 20 years in prison, then that would inhibit his political future. But anyway, this is a case where he may wish that the code of ethics for a governor, the standards for a governor, were different from the standards of a private individual. But he's not going to get away with it, I think, simply in, in large part because he made his public reputation on this sort of private code of ethics. Anyway, so today I'm going to talk about, well, I tried to come up with a mildly humorous, at least sort of diverting title for each of these talks. And the title for this morning's talk is uh, Sam Goldwyn's Secret. Sam Goldwyn was a Hollywood producer who once said that sincerity is everything. And once you learn to fake it, you'll go far. <laughs> and he was talking about, I don't know, I guess the business of making movies. Perhaps he was talking about acting and what one portrays in a role. He might just as well have been talking about being president of the United States. I'm going to talk about the presidency, but I could probably be talking about the prime ministership of Britain or the leadership of any great country. In particular, though, countries that have democratic political systems, where the rulers have to answer to the people, who have to gain the support of the people. I'd go so far even as to say, this probably applies to kings, 
and to czars and to emperors as well, but in a somewhat different way, because kings don't have to be elected. However, if they're going to get anything done, they do have to maintain the support of the people, and there's a difference between unpopular kings, like Louis XVI, who get their heads chopped off in a revolution, and Louis XIV, who is known as the Sun King, who made France great. Anyway, I was moved to think about this when I was searching for a title for the book that I'm working on now. I'm completing a book on Franklin Roosevelt. And every book has to have a title. And every title should somehow identify the subject and then indicate what particular perspective or take or interpretation the author has on the subject. There have been lots of books written about Franklin Roosevelt. And I had to come up with something that was distinctive about my interpretation of Roosevelt. So why read Brands' book on Roosevelt when there are a bunch of other books out there? And I've been through three or four versions of the title. And the first one that I came up with was, I thought it caught, it caught my theme pretty well, but it didn't generate a whole lot of enthusiasm among the marketing crew at my publisher. And that, that's important. You have to get these people on board so they'll go out and push a book and say it's the best thing since that's great. But the title that I came up with and that captured, I thought, an important aspect of Franklin Roosevelt's presidents was command performance. And I was going to spin out the various ways you could interpret command performance. But the emphasis, well, was both on the command and the performance. And the command was kind of a dual use, where he was the commander of American forces during the Second World War. And so that's where the command comes from. But a command performance, as you may know or remember, is usually a performance given by some artist or actor or musician before a king or queen. And typically the invitation comes and the king commands to you to perform at court at such and such a time. So I could argue that Roosevelt's command came from the American people. And this is something that presidents have commented on and prided themselves on since the days of Andrew Jackson. They serve at the will of the American people. And reluctant candidates, reluctant presidents, like Jackson, like Ulysses Grant, this is particularly true of generals who go into politics. Jackson, Grant, uh, his latest Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower didn't want to run for president. But the idea that the American people might command him to be president, he would say, well, it's very much the way I answered orders from my commander-in-chief during the war. And the higher commander-in-chief, in fact, than the president of the United States, is the people of the United States. So that's where the command was going to come in. The emphasis was equally on performance. Because I came to realize that the success of presidents is very much a performance. Presidents perform a role. There are certain things that are expected of presidents, and if you do these things well, then you're pretty far down the road to getting what you want out of the presidency and getting the kind of support you want. Now, this is not to say that a president's performance is insincere, but it is to say that it must be effective and it must be viewed, at least in part, as a performance. And when I thought about this, I was drawn by a comment that Franklin Roosevelt made to Orson Welles. Orson Welles was 
probably the most famous actor of his day in the 1930s. He was a movie director and producer. He was a really big wig in Hollywood. And he visited the White House one day during the 1930s. And Franklin Roosevelt said, Orson, I want you to know that you and I are the two finest actors in America. And I thought this was quite striking, strikingly candid, coming from a president. Because I think all presidents understand that they're acting in some sense or another, but for them to admit it to another actor, maybe he would only admit it to another actor, I'm not sure. He didn't repeat the comment, as far as I know, to other people. But he did recognize that what he was doing was an aspect of performing. It was a kind of act. Now, when I'm writing this book about Frank and Roosevelt, I have to explain Roosevelt the president. I also have to explain Roosevelt the man. This is a biography. This is a life of Franklin Roosevelt. And this notion that he was acting seemed to me to provide a kind of insight as well into the individual, into the personality. Because I remember an interview I heard on the radio years ago. This was probably 20 years ago. And I remember the comment. It was, I think it was an interview. Actually, excuse me, it may have been on television. Because I think the interviewer was Dick Cavett. And I believe that the interviewee, I'm, I've searched for this on Google and various other places. I can't find it. I'm pretty, I know I'm not making it up. But I may have misremembered exactly who the actor was. But I think it was the Broadway actor and movie actor Joel Gray. And the interviewer, Cabot, asked Joel Gray if after all these years he had spent on stage, on screen, if he ever suffered from stage fright. And Joel Gray said, no, not stage fright. What I have is life fright. And what he explained, what he went on to explain was that he found acting to be so congenial because when he was on stage, when he was filling a role, he could get outside of himself. It was sort of the self of himself that he was afraid of. When he had to be himself, that's what made him nervous. When he could be somebody else, then he could be sort of anybody else. And anybody else was preferable to himself. So there were things in his own head, in his own psyche, that he was uncomfortable with. And he found the greatest comfort in getting outside of that. And I've, I've thought about that for a long time. When I've observed people who are in positions where they're performing. And when I came across Franklin Roosevelt's comment to Orson Welles, I remembered this interview and this remark that this veteran actor had made. Say, no, it's not stage fright, it's life fright. And the more I got to think about it, the more I came to the conclusion that the way to understand Franklin Roosevelt, and when you're writing a biography, you're trying to figure out what the key to the life is, the secret to understanding this particular individual. And maybe it's not insignificant. How many of you remember the movie Citizen Kane? It's Orson Welles, most famous movie. And if you remember the way the story goes, Citizen Kane, who's modeled on William Randolph Hearst, has died. And a reporter goes out and tries to figure out 
what the secret of this life was. Because here's this kid who was born to a very wealthy family, and he he had to make his own mark in the world, and he became this publisher, he became a Hollywood producer, he spent money lavishly, he had numerous affairs. He was somebody who was sort of thrashing around in life, trying to figure out what it was all about. And this reporter, after the death, is trying to, you know, what made this guy tick? And he heard that the last word that he spoke before dying was rosebud. And so this good reporter is trying to figure out what's rosebud. He figures that rosebud must hold the secret to the light of this very wealthy individual who seemed to have everything except happiness. And so he goes back through his life, and it's through the eyes of the reporter that we see this life unfold. And so we see the various phases of Kane's life, William Randolph Hearst's life. And the reporter goes through the whole life and he's trying to interview people and he's trying to find the story, trying to find the secret, trying to figure out what Rosebud meant. If anything, he's not sure that it really holds the key, but he thinks that it does. And so we get to the end of the life and we get to the end of the movie and the reporter is stumped. And he just can't figure out what Rosebud was. So, the last scene of the movie, the reporter's walking away, and the, the great mansion, which is supposed to be San Simeon in California, they're cleaning out all of the stuff, and the moving guys have come in, and they're throwing away a lot of stuff, and giving it off to charity, and doing everything, sort of dismantling the life. And the last scene of the movie, there's this big pile of trash that's being burned. And the camera scopes in, and in the middle of this pile of trash, just as the flames are licking up, is this childhood sled, this toy. And the brand name on the sled is Rosebud. So anyway, when I'm writing a biography, when I buy any biographers writing a biography, we're all looking for the key to understand the life. We're looking for Rosebud and what it means. Now, I think we all, at least I do, recognize that this does oversimplify things a bit. You can't explain a whole life through a word, a rosebud, or a single key, but I think, at least I've concluded, that it simply comes with the territory of reducing a life to a book. That you know, a life takes 60, 70, 80 years to live. If I'm writing a book, it might be a long book, it could be as long as 800 pages, and it might take you 20 hours to read but 20 hours compared to 80 years. So you take this life and you boil it down. And you try to find something that explains the life. So, I concluded that the way to explain the life of Franklin Roosevelt was that he, like Joel Gray, suffered from a kind of life fright. And that he was more comfortable on stage in this role than he was as an individual. Now, why did I come to this conclusion? In part because he was so good at it. Franklin Roosevelt, I think, was the best performer as president of all the presidents of the 20th century. And I would argue that means of all presidents of all time. Because 
one of the things I'm going to elaborate on in a later lecture is the extent to which the presidency changes when you get into the 20th century. Before the 20th century, being president of the United States was much more like being the chief executive of a company or a corporation. Before the days of mass media, the president didn't represent the nation in the same way that he does since. People never saw Abraham Lincoln. Oh, well, a, a few rare photographs of Abraham Lincoln, but he didn't travel around much. There was a war on. And so if you lived in Illinois, well, maybe you'd seen him when he was, before he became president. If you lived in Massachusetts, you never saw him. If you lived anywhere outside of Washington, D.C., you never saw the president. You never heard the president. The president didn't give speeches. Well, there was that rare speech, the Gettysburg Address, but you just read about it in the paper. You probably didn't even read the text of the speech, as short as it was. But once mass media develops, then presidents become these national figures. And Roosevelt was, Franklin Roosevelt was the best of them. The other thing was, that there were some personal elements in Roosevelt's makeup and some incidents in his life that he wanted to get away from, that he wanted to put behind him. And the most important of these was the fact that from the age of 39, he was a paraplegic. He couldn't walk. Until 39, until he was born in 1882, until the summer of 1921, Franklin Roosevelt was a very athletic young man. He prided himself on his ability to play various sports. He was a great sailor. He used to run all over decks of small yachts, big ships. When he was campaigning, he had been in politics since 1910, he had a very physical and vigorous style of campaigning. He, would, he was one of the first people to use a car in campaigning in New York State, but he'd stop the car at every crossroads, and he'd bounce out of the car, he was one who would work the crowds. He was constantly moving, he was up and down, in fact, his staff often commented on the fact that he never sit still, that they just couldn't get him to sit still to listen to what they had to say to him, as important as it was. And this proceeded until he was 39 years old, when, in a very rare case, of adult onset polio. And polio in those days was typically called infantile paralysis because it commonly struck young children. And it almost never struck adults. But it struck Franklin Roosevelt. And from the summer of 1921 until the end of his life in 1945, he never walked again, unaided. He, well, he really didn't walk at all. He eventually came up with some braces, knee braces, that would lock his knees into place. And then with crutches and people holding his arms, he could kind of move himself like this. He could stand. And in fact, he typically would stand behind the lectern like this and give the impression that he was standing on his own. But in fact, he was holding himself up for dear life. And if you looked closely, you could see the sweat on his brow from the sheer effort of holding himself there. When people would cheer before he contracted polio, of course, he would stand and he would wave and he'd do well. After polio, he couldn't wave. He was hold on like this. And he would smile. And it was a very determined smile. 
And his way of dealing with the fact that he couldn't walk was essentially to deny that he was disabled. He lived in a constant state of denial. Now, in our day and age, denial is often considered to be an inappropriate response to something. We're supposed to deal with our feelings. We're supposed to, to deal with tragedy. We're supposed to mourn. We're supposed to work our way through all of this. And maybe that's a good way of dealing with things. Maybe it's not. In Roosevelt's day, it was much more common to simply rise above it, whatever it was. If something went wrong, you put on a stiff upper lip, and you just pretend it hadn't happened. And Roosevelt often acted as though he wasn't paralyzed. And he would deny to the public the extent of his paralysis. Roosevelt's disability was not a secret by any means. The fact that he had suffered polio was well reported in all of the papers at the time and caused a great deal of concern because if Roosevelt could come down with polio, probably anybody could. He was privileged and wealthy and he, he seemed to live a life that ought to exempt him from this sort of thing, but it didn't. Roosevelt did, however, he, went under, he underwent physical therapy for several years and he made it seem as though he had recovered more fully than he had. So that was one aspect of the denial. Another aspect of the denial, though, was that he denied that he was depressed or that he ought to be depressed. Now, it has struck me in my study of presidents and other public figures how often depression or something akin to depression acts as a kind of driving force to get people to accomplish things that they wouldn't have accomplished otherwise. And here I'll cite the example of Franklin Roosevelt's fifth cousin and uncle by marriage, Theodore Roosevelt. I wrote a book about Theodore Roosevelt some years ago. And again, I had to try to figure out what the secret of Theodore Roosevelt was. Here was someone who was constantly active, who was on the move, who was the advocate of the strenuous life, who was constantly shouting, bully and delighted, and who never stopped moving from the time he woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning until the time he went to bed at And from the age of about 15 until he died at 60, he was just on the go all the time, never stopped. And I thought about it. Well, what is it that makes somebody go like this? It was widely interpreted during his life. Ah, this was just Roosevelt's effervescence. His sheer animal spirits. He had so much to contribute to the world that he simply couldn't find enough hours in the day. And I was suspicious of that because I just don't think people work that. I think people are more complicated. I thought that that was a caricature of Theodore Roosevelt. And I read enough of Roosevelt's letters and enough about Roosevelt's upbringing and his life and people who knew him to suspect that more was involved. And one of the things I learned was that depression ran in Roosevelt's family. That he had an uncle who killed himself. He had a brother who drank and drugged himself to death. Two of his sons effectively committed suicide, one overtly blowing his head off, another working himself to death. Roosevelt himself 
constantly, repeatedly put himself in positions of grave danger. And so I wondered, did this guy have a death wish? And when I considered how he died, he essentially wore himself out. He died as a relatively young man, 60 years old. And I thought, well, okay, what's going on here? And then, and then I read, this was sort of my rosebud moment for Theodore Roosevelt. When I read a phrase that he uttered, it was a paraphrase of the Roman author, Horace. When Roosevelt said, black care, this is Theodore Roosevelt, black care can never overtake a rider who gallops fast enough. Now I thought, well, that's a remarkable thing for somebody of the public persona of Theodore Roosevelt to say, black care. Black care wasn't associated with Theodore Roosevelt. No, Theodore Roosevelt was this one who seemed to enjoy life and everything about life. So what's he talking about black care? And what's he talking about riding fast enough? Well, I understood the riding fast enough. And here, see, this is where the personal biography of the biographer comes into play. Because we all have some kind of implicit or explicit theory of human nature. We think after a while we know what makes people tick. And not that the same thing makes everybody tick, but we have this impression of what human beings are like. And to some extent it's formed by our own personal experience. For example, Theodore Roosevelt had one brother, two sisters and one brother. His brother was younger than he was. His brother was a better athlete than he was. His brother was better looking than he was. His brother was more popular than he was. In fact, for the first 20 years of their lives, everybody thought that the younger brother, Elliot Roosevelt, was the one who would succeed in life. Theodore Roosevelt was this nerdy kid who was not a good athlete. He's always trying, but he just wasn't very good. He was nearsighted as could be. In fact, when he was, he finally got, he got his first pair of glasses at the age of 12 or 13 and was astonished to discover that trees, those mass, those blobs of green that he had been seeing actually had distinct leaves on them. The members of the family were amazed, were appalled, and learned to keep their distance when Theodore Roosevelt's father gave him a shotgun. <laughs> Go hunting, because they were pretty aware that he couldn't see much of anything. Now, he had a certain kind of physical courage that came out. He became a hunter. But the only way he could hunt effectively was get really close to what he was trying to hunt. And when this included things like grizzly bears, he had got to give the guy credit because he had to get within 20 or 30 feet of the bear before he could have any chance of killing him. But anyway, I had to figure out what made this guy tick. And I became convinced, I didn't know if I was right or wrong, but convinced me anyway, that Theodore Roosevelt recognized in himself the same depressive streak that he saw that was clearly evident in his brother and that he saw in his uncle and that eventually emerged in his children. Now, I have witnessed depression at first hand. I know it runs in families. And I've seen the way it shapes people's outlook. And one of the ways, well, there these days, ah, and this 
gets to a hypothesis that I have, and I don't know exactly how to test it. But the hypothesis is that in the age of Prozac, we are going to lose out on some of the great public figures that we might have had otherwise. Because if Theodore Roosevelt had been alive, if he had been born 100 years later, 150 years later than he was, if he had been a child in the age of Ritalin and Prozac, he would have been put on antidepressants. And he wouldn't have had, getting around to, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's way of dealing with this depression was to deny that it existed and to spend his life in a, a frenzy of activity. I said that we all draw on our own experience. Well, when I was assessing Theodore Roosevelt's relationship with his brother, I have a younger brother. And one of the comments that I made in the book about Theodore Roosevelt and Elliot Roosevelt was that Theodore Roosevelt felt challenged by his younger brother because, I, as I pointed out, Elliot was the one who was sort of better, more popular, better looking, and all these things. And for the older brother, that was especially threatening. It's, and, and the, the thing that I, the statement that I made that got my younger brother's attention was, I said that in the normal course of events, the older child is supposed to be better at all these things than the younger child, well, because he's older, you know, bigger, stronger, and all this stuff. And the younger child is supposed to wait his turn. Well, and I said that the fact that Elliot was the one who was surpassing Theodore, the younger brother surpassing the older brother, was what really challenged Theodore's sense of himself. And so the one comment my younger brother David had in the book is, what do you mean the older brother is supposed to be better than all this other thing? Anyway, but I also have a sister. I have two sisters. I have a sister, Lori, who is very much into psychological interpretations of things. And she loves to try to psychoanalyze our father. Now, I've never particularly felt obliged to psychoanalyze our father. He's just dad, and that's the way it is. But Lori, Lori has, and maybe this is because, I don't know, if speaking to the women in the room, there sometimes is a relationship between daughters and fathers that is very difficult to fathom if you're not part of the relationship. Um, but anyway, Lori was constantly trying to figure out our dad. And she came up with this theory. And the theory was that our dad, he's not, I wouldn't say he's exactly like Theodore Roosevelt, but he was one who always kept very active. And Laurie would say, you know, Daddy never sits down to reflect on things because he'd lose all his momentum if he did so. Now, I'm, maybe I'm too close to the situation. I don't think that really applies to my dad particularly, but I'll bet that that was in my mind when I was thinking about Theodore Roosevelt. Because Theodore Roosevelt, I'm sure, never slowed down because if he did, that black hair might catch up with him. And he might fall victim to the same demons, as he would have put it, that caught up with Elliot. Okay, so that's the way the Roosevelts deal with this kind of personal challenge. And when I said that in the age of Prozac, we might lose some of this, if Theodore Roosevelt had come along 150 years later, at the age of 15, or 18, or 20, he would have complained of depression, 
and he would have gone and seen a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist would write him out a prescription. Okay, take this. And that would have been the way he would have dealt with his incipient depression, instead of going out basically to conquer the world. Now, I happen to think that world conquerors, the type of personality that goes out to conquer the world, and you decide how the world gets conquered, but the people who go out to do big things are almost, by definition, somewhat unbalanced or neurotic. They're not... They're not happy, they're not content, because if you're happy and content, why conquer the world? Why change the world if you like the world the way it is? No, people who change the world are people who don't like the world. And usually the thing they don't like the world is about the world is that somehow it doesn't fit them very well. And so there are, there's, there are two ways of responding to that. One is you can change yourself, and the other is you can change the world. And a lot of people are content to try to change themselves, but some people have sort of stubborn personalities that rather change the world. Anyway, back to Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt had to deal with the fact that he was paralyzed. And his life would never be the same as it had been before. And it's a commonplace among people, especially, especially adults, who suffer a lifelong disability, that a profound depression sits in, sets in. And you'd be depressed too, I suppose. I think I'd be depressed if you've been active your whole life and now you know you can spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair. And you have to come to terms with that. And you could come to terms with that by changing your expectations of yourself. Think, okay, there are a lot of things I cannot do. And so I'll just concentrate on the things that I can do. Or you can take the attitude, hey, no, this doesn't mean that I can't do things. I still can do everything I was going to do before. And you can just carry on as though it hadn't happened. And you certainly can pretend that you're not depressed. I think that Franklin Roosevelt was on the verge of depression through most of his life, through most of the 21 years after he came down with polio. In fact, I suppose that if I were a psychiatrist, I could probably find symptoms of actual depression there. But here's somebody who refused to let the depression overtake him, who refused to succumb, who acted to all outward appearances as though he was as happy-go-lucky as ever. In part, he felt obliged to do it for the sake of his children, his and Helen Roosevelt's children. In part, he did it because, well, he had had political ambitions before this, and he wanted to maintain his political ambitions. And in part because if he pretended that nothing had happened, then it was almost as though nothing had happened. He grew up in what's commonly called the Victorian era. He was born in 1882, and people in those days were expected to rise above Chandler. They weren't expected to spend a lot of time contemplating what this all means and coming to terms with their feelings. No, no. Forget your feelings. Just get on and do what needs to be done. And this is what Roosevelt did. People who came to visit him in the hospital, even after shortly after he came down with polio, were struck by the fact that he just seemed as happy. He was constantly laughing. He was acting as though almost nothing had happened. When he went into politics, he was constantly acting as though he could do whatever he had done before. And I think Roosevelt, especially after his polio, realized or discovered, concluded that if he 
enacted the role of the political leader, then he could avoid having to deal with the personal side of his disability. As long as he could look ahead and look up to the White House, for example, to the governorship of New York first, then to the White House, then he didn't have to look down at his shrunken, paralyzed legs. And when I said that Roosevelt considered himself an actor, he acted the role of president. He also acted as though he wasn't paralyzed. And like the actor Joel Gregg, who said, no, it's not stage fright I suffer from. It's life fright. I think Roosevelt had some of that life fright. I think Roosevelt was a person who was more himself when he was acting a role than when he was actually what the rest of us would call himself. Roosevelt kept no diary. Roosevelt wrote letters, but the letters are singularly unrevealing of the man himself. They're just very chatty. Went to this, went to dinner with that, did this, did that. I can read, I've read hundreds and hundreds of Roosevelt letters, Franklin Roosevelt letters, and I get almost no sense of what he was feeling, what the basic issues of life meant to him. I can't find them there. He just didn't reflect on this stuff, not in letters. I've read memoirs of everybody who knew Roosevelt and put their experiences of Roosevelt down on paper. And they never talk about Roosevelt saying, the meaning of life is this. I hope, my, these are my hopes, these are my dreams, these are the things where life has not lived up to my expectations. There's none of that. Roosevelt, to all appearances, lived outwardly this very superficial level. So, I'm trying to figure out, so where is the real Roosevelt? Where is the Rosebud in Roosevelt? And I concluded, when I just watched this guy perform as president, that he really was one of these people who felt more himself on stage than he did in his own private study or office. And Roosevelt was constantly on stage. It's no coincidence that once he was elected president, the American people didn't realize at the time that they had elected a president for life. He was elected once, twice, three times, a fourth time he died in office. Now, he didn't know he was going to die in office when he was elected in 1932, but he certainly showed no signs of wanting to give up the presidency. I'm going to say in the book, that if not for the coming of the war in Europe in 1939, that Roosevelt would not have won a third term. And I, I think that's true. I'm not sure at all, however, that Roosevelt wouldn't have tried for a third term. Because if he left the White House, then he really would have had to deal with his personal life. And being an ex-president is a tough thing. It's hard enough for anybody Bill Clinton's trying to find a role for himself. But for somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, who was able to deal with the personal issues of his life by looking ahead and looking up, to have to look back and look down, because anything after the White House is a letdown of sorts, what would he do? And the fact is, he never had to figure that out because he figured out how to stay in office for the rest of his life. There's another aspect of this, and that is that Roosevelt was simply so good at the role of being president. When he said to Orson Welles, you and I are the best actors in America, he understood that he was acting this role. And the way he acted was through 
set speeches. He gave lots of speeches through press conferences. Roosevelt gave more press, held more press conferences than any president before or after. Some 954 press conferences in the 12 years of his presidency. He met with the press twice a week. That was the Adams, the, the normal rule. And sometimes, in addition to that, on extraordinary occasions. And every press conference was an improvisational performance. Roosevelt roughly knew what he wanted to talk about. But he essentially held court. He came on stage in the Oval Office of the White House when he was in Washington, sometimes at Hyde Park in the family home there, or when he was traveling to various other places. And the way it worked was he would bring the reporters into his office. Unlike previous presidents, Herbert Hoover, his predecessor, had insisted on questions being submitted in writing because that way he could limit the questions he wanted to answer. If he didn't want to answer a particular question, he would just shuffle that to the bottom. And he would have a chance to think over what he was saying. Because presidents know that what they say can change stock markets, can change the fate of history. And if they misspeak, then it can cause a great furor. And the fate of America can be put at risk. And this is why presidents who are not good at this try to resist news conferences or they'll plant questions or they'll ask particular reporters that they know will ask friendly questions. So it's the relatively rare president who is comfortable in this kind of venue. Most presidents, when they give, nowadays you have to give press conferences. Some presidents give more press conferences than other Clinton had press conferences much more often than George W. Bush. But it's something that they often do kind of reluctantly because they realize the high-stakes game they're playing. Roosevelt was playing for equally high stakes, in fact, arguably much higher stakes, because the economy was far more fragile during the Great Depression. And for the six years from 1939 to 1945, world order, world peace, the fate of humanity was at stake. But time after time, twice a week, more than 900 times, he went through this performance. And he was absolutely brilliant at it. He could stage manage the performance. He sat behind his desk, and he had the reporters come in. They often crowded into this small space. He deliberately had them in his own office, not in a particular um, separate meeting room. It was on his turf. They knew that they were intruding on his space. They were his guests. He did this deliberately because he knew that he could gain a psychological edge over them. They had to act politely because they were his guests in his house, in his office. He let them crowd closely around. He liked the idea that they were crowded because it created a kind of intimate atmosphere. And they would feel as though they were part of almost this conspiracy. He would tell them some things off the record. He would tell them certain things for background. And they weren't supposed to report this. And he didn't make a big issue of it, but if they did report it, if they said something they weren't supposed to say, they'd lose their past to get into the next press conference. And this was the worst thing that could happen to report it. It often is for White House correspondents, but for Roosevelt, Roosevelt's twice-weekly news conferences were the best show in town. And nobody wanted to miss it because he would joke with the reporters. One of the striking things, all you can read the transcripts 
of all the press conferences. And it is amazing how many times there is square brackets, laughter. Square brackets, more laughter. Square brackets, still more laughter. The, the press conferences were not recorded, unlike some of other Roosevelt's other performances. They were not recorded. And so we don't know exactly how it sounded, how it worked. But a variety of reporters have talked about it. And they, to a person, say that it was the most fun time they've ever had covering the White House. And Roosevelt knew just how far to tip his hand to intrigue the reporters, to entice them in, and then to withhold information. Partly to maintain his sort of psychological advantage over the reporters, so I know more than you do, partly because he realized if he spoke too much, it would spook the stock market or it cause some speculators to make a bunch of money they shouldn't be making, or it would warn of some offensive in, during the World War. This kind of performance should have worn anybody out, would have worn anybody out to do this time and time again for 12 years. But Roosevelt seemed to thrive on it. He seemed to come more alive during these press conferences than in just about anything else he did. Ah, with one other thing. And here's where I'm going to get to another crucial aspect of Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's performance as president. And that is his use of the predominant medium of his day. I said earlier that the presidency really changed in the 20th century in the age of mass communication. You can see the change begin with Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was the first president of the age of cheap newspapers. The penny press developed in the 1890s. And Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, understood how to deal with newspaper reporters. He understood the timing of newspaper reporting. He understood the distinction between morning newspapers and evening newspapers, and how you could get certain things into the afternoon papers that wouldn't go into the morning papers and vice versa. He knew that if you wanted to get bad news out, you'd give it on a Friday afternoon because then it wouldn't make the major papers until Monday morning, and people would have had something to forget about in the meantime. Franklin Roosevelt took advantage of the new medium of his day, radio. And radio is, I would argue, is the most intimate of the mass communications mediums. Because Roosevelt was able to speak to the American people by the millions, but also one by one. In the sense that people listening in their homes could listen to Franklin Roosevelt and imagine that he was speaking to them one by one. Now, in this day of the internet, you can listen to Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats. These fireside chats were his radio addresses to the American people. They took place about three or four times a year. Presidents today, President Clinton, President Bush, have given and do give weekly radio addresses. And nobody listens to them. Any of you ever heard one of the president's weekly radio addresses? Nobody listens to them because they happen every week. And you know that what he's saying on the radio is not going to be different than what he said on television. So they're really beside the point. And they make it difficult to recapture how important Roosevelt's fireside attacks were in the first place. He did these very rarely, just on really big occasions, a couple times a year. Secondly, this was the only way you could hear the president in real time. There was no television. 
And so when Roosevelt gave on the fireside chats, the nation stopped. And they listened, and they paid attention. And Roosevelt had this voice. He had a command of the lexicon and the style of delivery of radio that made him exceedingly effective. And it was another aspect of this performance. Was it insincere? Not at all. The thing that made it work so well is he believed what he was saying, but he also understood that it was a performance. If he performed well, then he had a much better chance of accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish. If he didn't perform very well, then he probably wouldn't. Herbert Hoover occasionally gave radio addresses, but Herbert Hoover didn't understand the use of the medium. He didn't have the personality. He didn't have this sense that what he was doing while giving this performance was as important as anything else that he was doing as president. I guess the moral of the story for Franklin Roosevelt and for the great presidents as performance is they understand that the performance is as important as anything else they do as president. The performance is as important as the policy itself. Herbert Hoover was brilliant on policy. He could analyze policy. He was as smart as anybody ever occupied the White House. But he underestimated the importance of the role of the president. He couldn't connect emotionally with the American people. Franklin Roosevelt did. In the age of television, the most successful of the performers was Ronald Reagan, has been Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan displayed a mastery of television. He knew how to present himself on television. He knew the kind of effect that he was having. He knew how to tell a joke. He knew when to smile. He knew how to use anecdotes, when to bring sort of props on stage. His State of the Union addresses. Typically, there would be some ordinary person, a fireman, a school teacher, that he would point to in the gallery. And he would tell the story, this little vignette of this person. And it would personalize the whole thing. And even Reagan's opponents, even people who disagreed with Reagan's policies, had to acknowledge that he was extremely effective. Now we live in a new era. We live in the new age of the Internet. Will do, is there a politician today who has mastered the use of the internet? I don't think anybody in particular stands out. In fact, see, I don't even know how a politician would use the internet exactly. But that's the whole nature of these new media. Nobody knew what to make of mass circulation newspapers until Theodore Roosevelt came along. Nobody understood what a politician, what a president could make of the radio until Franklin Roosevelt demonstrated. Nobody really understood how effective television could be until Ronald Reagan showed that. So how about the internet? I don't know. I guess the, the great president of the internet age has yet to come along. Who will he or she be? I don't know. I'm going to stop here and see if you have any questions or comments. Yes? Look. I'm fascinated by your in, and all the people around him that wrote stories. What Eleanor? Did she know him? Eleanor said that after 35 years of marriage to Franklin, she oftentimes had no idea what he was saying. Now, this is partly a comment on Franklin. It's partly a comment on Eleanor. And it's, I suppose, predominantly a comment on the nature of their marriage. Because without going into too much detail regarding their marriage, Franklin Roosevelt had an affair 
that was discovered in 1918. They had been married for 13 years. Now, this is one of those cases, and I deal with this in the book, but I have to, I'll, I point out in the book, and I'll tell you, that like every other personal relationship, nobody outside the relationship has any idea what's going on within the relationship. This is one of the conclusions I've drawn from life. When I see people that I know who are together for years and years and years and then split up, and who have been apart for a long time and get together, I don't think anybody outside a relationship really understands what's going on in the relationship. And I would add to that that sometimes the people inside the relationship don't know what's going on in the relationship either. That's sort of a separate matter. But anyway, so I can tell you various reasons why Frank and Roosevelt had the affair. I can make conjectures. But the fact is that he was having an affair. Exactly what was the nature of the affair, we don't know. I don't know. We weren't there. Not, no firm evidence survived. But Eleanor discovered the affair. She had suspected something was going on for some while. But when she discovered some letters exchanged between, well, more precisely from Lucy Mercer, the woman that Franklin was seeing, to Franklin, she could read the letters, she could tell the tone of the letters, and she had to face up to the fact that her husband loved someone else. That's what it came down to. Her husband of 13 years had fallen in love with somebody else. So the question then is, what is she going to do? And of course, this is a question that arises again and again. It gets played out in public with Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. And when Bill Clinton was having affairs in the White House, what's Hillary going to do? And most recently, if you watch the news these last 24 hours, and you see the the pained look on the face of the wife of Elliot Spitzer. She's standing there beside him as he's making a statement to the press. What's going through her mind? Well, I don't know exactly what was going through Eleanor Roosevelt's mind, but the, the story that was handed down through the family was that Eleanor offered to give Franklin a divorce. Under New York law in the 1910s, if a spouse, especially a wife, contested a divorce, then the husband didn't have a chance of getting out of marriage. So the wife essentially had to say, okay, you can have a divorce. And the way Eleanor put it, according to the family story, was she offered Franklin his freedom. Now, Franklin did not take up the offer. Why not? We can conjecture, number one, he decided maybe he didn't love Lucy as much as he had thought. Maybe he realized that Lucy wouldn't marry him. Lucy was a Catholic, and Catholics are not supposed to marry divorced men or women. He probably understood that a divorce would be a scandal in those days, and that it would probably end his hopes of a political career. It was fairly common in America then, and it's, my father used to say, my mother, my father is almost 93, my mother is 82, and they both said that they would never vote for a divorce. Well, they said this before they voted for Ronald Reagan, but they said they, they wouldn't vote for a divorced person because, as my father used to say, my father is as traditionally, and you can say sexist if you want, but he was as traditional to say, well, 
Somebody who can't manage a family can't run the country. If you can't maintain the loyalty of your wife, then how are you going to maintain the loyalty of the American people? And this was a much more common view back in 1918 than now. So Franklin Roosevelt had every reason to believe that a divorce would end his hopes of someday becoming president. And there was one last thing, and this is where the story really gets complicated. Franklin Roosevelt had mother issues. He had a very strong, if I wanted to say domineering, I could mother. He was her only child, her only son. She doted on him. She was a widow for... 30 or 35 years. She had married a man much older than she was, a man twice her age. And he died at uh, 75 or something like that. So she was a widow. She was the only parent of her only son for an extended period of time. She lived almost as long as Franklin Roosevelt did. And she never was quite reconciled to the fact that Franklin had chosen Eleanor over her. And that's the way she interpreted it. She tried to break up the relationship when Eleanor and Franklin told her that they were engaged. She said, oh. She immediately whisked Franklin off on a foreign trip, hoping that he would meet some other girl. She thought that Eleanor was beneath her son. Now, this despite the fact that Eleanor was the niece of the President of the United States. Well, Sarah Roosevelt thought everybody was beneath Franklin. She thought that Theodore Roosevelt was beneath her, and the President of the United States was beneath her son. And she insisted on maintaining the purse strings of the family. Now, when I say she insisted, well, Franklin Roosevelt was complicit in this. He could have acted like any other adult male and gotten a job and become financially independent, but he didn't. He was willing maybe even happy, to accept the fact that he depended on his mother financially. Eleanor found this exceedingly irritating because at several stages in their life together, Franklin deferred to the wishes of his mother over the wishes of his wife. And so if Franklin Roosevelt had mother issues, Eleanor Roosevelt had mother-in-law issues. But anyway, Sarah, the mother, made clear to Franklin that if he divorced Eleanor, he would be cut off without a penny. And the idea of having to go out and work for a living made him stop short and say, eh, I don't think so. So, Eleanor and Franklin held the marriage together. But there were two conditions that Eleanor imposed. One was that Franklin would never see Lucy again. Seems reasonable enough. The other condition was perhaps more problematic. They would never share a bedroom again. They would be partners, but they would no longer be physically intimate. And this was part of the deal. And Franklin accepted the deal. With the result that they lived under the same roof for a while, but then Eleanor actually built a house for herself on the family estate at Hyde Park. So they didn't just not share a bedroom, they didn't share a house. 
And Eleanor found all sorts of ways of occupying her time and energy. Now, you could wonder, you could ask, well, boy, this is this might work okay for Franklin, because he still has a viable political career, but what did Eleanor see in it? And see, this is the interesting question, this is one of the interesting questions to me. And it goes at this question of why did Hillary stay with Bill? You know, everybody would have said to Hillary, you know, divorce the scumbags. And when, I don't remember her first name, but when the wife of Elliot Spitzer is standing there beside her man, I mean, good God. He's announcing that he has, for some considerable while apparently, paid for the services of prostitutes. And you stand, I mean, at the very least, you know, make him stand up by himself and face the music. But you stand there beside him, why is she doing it? I can't speak for her. I can't speak for Hillary Clinton. Well, I can conjecture for Hillary Clinton. And it's sort of the same conjecture I'd make for Eleanor Roosevelt. Both women understood that their connection to this powerful man was going to give them power that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, Hillary Clinton, I conceivably, could have thought that on her own she could run for president. But there are lots of talented, well-educated, ambitious women in the United States. So why Hillary Clinton and not any one of them? Well, because she has this name recognition and she can claim that she's had this time in the White House. So she understood that it was, you could call it a bargain with the devil if you want to, but life is full of these bargains. And Hillary made her bargain and maybe it'll get her to the White House. Now, by the way, I wouldn't rule out the fact that Hillary still loves Bill Clinton. In fact, I would be surprised if she didn't at some level, because I can observe it in Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. They developed what became a political alliance, and Franklin served Eleanor's purposes, her political purposes, just as much as she served his. The fact that she was married to the president meant that people listened to her. She had a daily newspaper column was syndicated in hundreds of newspapers around the country. She had a weekly radio program. None of this would have happened had she not been the first lady of the United States. She lived in an age when women received the vote. Women got the vote in 1920 in elections all around the country. She could have run for president, for office, but that wasn't in her personality. And so she understood that she would have political influence by her connection to Frank and Mosley. But even then, you know, there was that was part of the deal. But when I read their letters, their letters back and forth between Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt for the rest of their life together until 1945 when he dies. And I read those letters, and there's a sincere affection between the two. It's partly the affection, I assume, of parents who share children. And you can see this in a lot of cases of divorced couples who still have children, and the children are this connection. And after they get over the bitterness of the breakup, if there is a bitterness there, then oftentimes they can sort of remember what it was they had in common in the first place. And in the case of Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, you see this. And you see that they shared a lot of political views, and they both believed that they were embarked on this very important effort to remake America for the better. 
And so they would talk about what they can do. Eleanor was always pushing Franklin harder, and he was able or willing to go. Um, and so she got impatient with him. He got impatient with her because she never seemed to stop pushing her causes. And oftentimes, he just needed to relax and get away. He was, as I say, he was on stage all the time. Well, he, everybody needs a certain amount of downtime. And Eleanor never seemed to let him alone. So figuring out this relationship is a central part of my story. And I don't profess any great confidence in the story I'm going to tell. I'm just saying, okay, I can tell what the evidence is. This is what we know. Now, beyond that, what can we suppose? What can we infer? And I'll say, I've been studying. This is what I've come up with. You know, it might not be right, but there it is. I was going to ask you a question last night. Sure. And what do you think about GW going off on, on crusades uh, and his particular political agenda to, to uh, invade countries that we really didn't have any interest in? Iraq in particular. But. Okay, I'm going to answer your question as best I can. And I will confess that I don't know George W. Bush personally. I've met him a few times, had dinner with him. Uh, but I don't profess to be a close friend. I don't have any particular insight into his psyche. So this is somebody from the outside observing and trying to figure out what is going on. As I said last night, one of the fundamental things we historians do is try to get our students to ask the question, we try to answer the question, what were they thinking? So what was George W. Bush thinking in ordering the invasion of Iraq? And I'm going to tell you, and this will be in the spirit of what I've been saying this morning, about how a biographer tries to figure out, tries to find the key to a personality, the key to a life, and the connection between that private life and the public life. So I'm going to answer as though I were writing George W. Bush's biography 20 years from now, okay? And again, you don't have to put any store in what I say, but this is the interpretation I'm going to give you. And I'll tell you sort of what we know and what is sort of everybody would agree on and then where I'm going beyond that. But it comes down to this, and there is a certain, a very strong psychological element in this. And I... I'm interested that you use the term crusade, because he did. And it was almost, it was kind of a slip of the tongue when he said, you know, we're engaged in this crusade, because he was quickly reminded, well, wait a minute, don't use that term in dealing with Muslim countries, because it raises images of the real crusades back then, Christians against Muslims, and we don't want to make a religious thing. Okay. Well, here's my interpretation of George W. Bush. It's sort of like, in some ways, the relationship with George W. Bush, it's like the relationship between Theodore Roosevelt and Elliot Roosevelt, in that it was the younger brother, Jeb Bush, who was the one who was the political star, the one who found an interest in politics, the one that everybody in the family expected to go into politics. George W. Bush, his father's namesake, was the young playboy, the one who, by his own admission, spent most of many years of his young adulthood, simply partying and drunk. And he wanted to distance himself as much as possible from the world of his father. 
And this isn't that unusual. Sons often do try to make their own mark, do something quite different. So his father was in politics. He didn't want to have anything to do with politics. And so he went off and did this and that. And as I said, by his own admission, he was he had a drinking problem. And then, apparently, on his 40th birthday, his wife, Laura, gave him an ultimatum. Stop drinking, straighten up, or else. Now, I don't know what the else was, but Laura and some of George Bush's friends conducted some kind of intervention, saying, look, you've got to straighten up. You've got to get your life under control. And to that point that he went off the sauce, he stopped drinking. And, again, now, this is what we know. Now I'm going to tell you where we get in the realm of conjecture. I'm not going to say that George W. Bush was an alcoholic, although a lot of people have said that. Maybe so. But he recognized that he had this weakness for drink. And so he took the attitude. Now, actually, I don't know. And I suppose this is documented, but I don't remember. I don't know if he ever went through Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that. But it became clear that he realized he had to get his life sort of in order, under control. And I would interpret George W. Bush's subsequent career as, in part, the reaction of the recovering alcoholic. And one of the things that recovering alcoholics do is to find something that they can cling to, find something that they believe in. They have to reaffirm each time, you know, on the way, I don't remember what the, the formula is, but, you know, each day you count the number of days since you had your last drink and you realize that any slip backwards and you can go back to where you were before you started your recovery. So they act as, in fact, as I understand it, alcoholics don't say, I'm a former alcoholic. They say, I'm a recovering alcoholic, but they realize that the personality aspects that caused them to turn to alcohol in the first place are probably still there. They just have to deal with it in another way. And so, okay, so that's background. And so Bush decides, well, okay, what can I do with my life? You know what? I've got a very famous name. I can go into politics. And so sort of like Theodore Roosevelt, who deals with his own psychological issues by going into politics, so does George W. Bush. And it's relatively easy in Texas because Texas, you can get into politics, the famous name in the state. It was a state that was turning Republican at the time he went into politics. And it's a state where the governor doesn't have to do a whole lot. It's a great state to run for president from because you can have been governor and you can just shift the blame for what you didn't get done on the lieutenant governor, who's actually more powerful in Texas than the governor is. But in addition, okay, so that's background. He goes into politics, he discovers that he can get the support of the Republicans in 98 and 99, when they're looking for somebody, anybody, who can defeat the Democrats. Because after eight years of Bill Clinton, they're just desperate to get back in the White House. So the big names, the big money in the Republican Party, they're trying to figure out who can we run, who will win, who can win. And they realize, okay, George Bush, he's got a million. And George Bush, the present George Bush, is very canny, is very good at making people believe that he could win in 2000, making people believe that he's the kind of person that they want for president. And so the powers in the Republican Party put their money on George W. Bush. 
He gets elected in 2000, but under rather debatable circumstances. And under these circumstances, he is a minority president. He got fewer votes than Al Gore, fewer popular votes than Al Gore, and it's only by the mercy of the Supreme Court that he became president of the United States. Now, if you look at the first eight months of Bush's presidency, compared to everything that came after, it's as though there's a different person there. And of course, the moment of change is 9-11. Okay, and here's my, again, this is my interpretation. This is what Brandon will write in his biography of George W. Bush 25 years from now. I'm assuming I don't come up with a new interpretation between now and then. George Bush, as this recovering alcoholic, oh, and there's another aspect to this, too. And one has to be careful about this because it gets on people's sensitivities. But George Bush is a born-again Christian and believes that God has a design for everybody's life. And an important aspect of your own salvation and your happiness on earth is figuring out what God has by way of design for your life. Why did God put me here? What does God want out of me? And it's not, it's not supposed to be that obvious. It's supposed to be something that you're, you have to reflect on, you pray about, and you hope for some kind of enlightenment. Now, this again, this is where, this is my interpretation, and I may, might be way off base, but between the sort of recovering alcoholic personality and this belief that God has a design for George W. Bush, and given the fact that he became president under these very contentious circumstances, I have to think that George Bush from January, well, actually from when is it? late November of 2000, when the Supreme Court says, you're the guy, until September 11, 2001, George Bush is asking himself, what is the purpose of my presidency? Why? did the stars align in such a way to make me president? Because there are all sorts of things that could have happened to make me not president. You know, the vote could have gone the other way in Florida. It could have gone the other way in the Supreme Court. But God made me president for some reason. I just haven't figured out what that reason is yet. And then along comes 9-11. And George W. Bush has this epiphany. God made me president to deal with this threat to the United States. And the threat is from international terrorism. And how are we going to deal with it? Well, we could simply attack the al-Qaeda bases in Afghanistan. And of course, the United States did just a few months after 9-11. But that doesn't get at the heart of the problem. At that point, George W. Bush, who until then had had a very modest agenda regarding foreign policy in the campaign of 2000, he said, you know, we're not into nation building. We're not, we don't do this kind of stuff. We look after our own interests narrowly to the phone. But at that point, George W. Bush engaged on what is the most ambitious program of American foreign policy since, well, certainly since the early Cold War. Nothing less ambitious than remaking the Middle East. And the war in Iraq was all about changing circumstances in the Middle East. Now, the initial reason, rationale, excuse for going into Iraq was to seek out these weapons of mass destruction. But as members of the administration admitted, it became apparent after there were no weapons turned up, that was simply the most plausible excuse. That's what you could sell to Congress and the American people. Because from, even before Bush became president, there was a group within the conservative wing of the Republican Party 
the neoconservatives, who've been talking about the need to overthrow Saddam Hussein and to try to democratize the Middle East. And George Bush bought into this. This was why he became president. This was what his purpose was. And like that recovering alcoholic, who recognizes that every day is a challenge. And you know, you have to, the more adversity you face, the more your faith is being tested. And just because what you're doing becomes difficult, just because it becomes unpopular, is no reason to give it up. No, no. In fact, all the more reason to cling to it. And this is why I'm convinced that Bush will stick by the policy in Iraq, regardless of how unpopular it might become. And he'll go up, he's going to leave office, and in a certain respect, he's going to leave office unpopular. And in a certain respect, his very unpopularity convinces him that he's right. Because if he changed his policy on account of his unpopularity, well, then he would be failing the test. The test of faith is your ability to sustain the faith during difficult times. The test of the recovering alcoholic is, can you be in a room where other people are drinking and you not succumb to that temptation? So in this case, the worse things get in Iraq, the more convinced he is that he's right. Now, does he think about how history, how historians like me are going to view him? I don't know. I don't know. I think that's the least of his concerns. He's really concerned is, is this the right thing to do? And there is a certain part of every American voter who admires that kind of thing. We like the president who stands up for what he believes, even if it's unpopular. Of course, here's, here's where the rub comes in. It might be unpopular. The question is, is it right? You know, is, is there any hope of democratizing the Middle East? If there is, and if the experiment of democracy in Iraq succeeds, and if it spreads throughout the Middle East, so that 50 years from now, the Middle East is filled with democratic countries, and the Middle East, the Muslim Middle East, begins to look like Western Europe. You know, Western Europe was the most warlike place on earth for the first half of the 20th century. And then everybody bought into democracy and free market economies, and it's been peaceful and prospered. There is a success story. And if the same thing happens in the Middle East, then historians like me and my successors, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, will look on George Bush as the great visionary of American foreign policy, the great visionary of world statesmen, because he saw the possibility in the Middle East that nobody else saw. He took a gamble. He sent American troops, expended American treasure. But the result was this brilliant success and he will be hailed as one of the great American presidents. If he's right, if he's wrong, then Iraq will become another Vietnam. It will become worse than Vietnam because we'll probably be stuck there forever. And although the United States lost in Vietnam, it didn't drive the price of oil up to $109 a barrel, which is what oil was at this morning. Okay? So if he's wrong, then it's a disaster. And he will be seen as arrogant, Foolish, somebody who's playing out his own psychological problems on the world stage, who sacrificed, who knows, by that time, tens of thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives, to this sort of private uh, psychological problem he's trying to work out. So the thing is, we don't know which scenario is going to unfold. Check back with me 50 years from now, and I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I could be there, I probably won't.
That's the great thing about making predictions for us historians. We, we historians, we try to avoid making predictions because it's hard enough to explain the past. But one rule of thumb is if you're going to make predictions, don't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Because tomorrow we'll know you're stupid when you make the predictions. <laughs> predict what's going to happen 50 years from now. Because nobody will be around to, to know if you're right or wrong. Anyway, thank you very much.